This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, February 3rd, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. Bernie Sanders has surged in the polls and came very close to winning the Iowa caucuses this week. And though he claims to hate them, he's been a disproportionate beneficiary of the super PAC. Paul Sherman is a senior attorney at the Institute for Justice. He comments. The New York Times has a really nice story, a really good story, frankly, about how Bernie Sanders is making a very disproportionate use, uh, if you want to call it that, of outside, if you want to call it that, money uh, in the form of super PACs, something he himself has pledged to completely eliminate. This is from the story, no union has spent much as much money in the Democratic primary as National Nurses United, which was born out of a 2009 merger of three smaller unions and has unapologetically embraced liberal politics and movement building. In 2011, union nurses provided health care at the Occupy Wall Street encampment in Lower Manhattan, and the organization has lobbied forcefully for single-payer health care and a financial transaction tax, and that they have backed uh, Mr. Sanders uh, as, as one of their Group. So, what does this say about campaign finance laws, super PACs, and the like? Well, so there's certainly a number of ironies here. I mean, one of them is that uh, Senator Sanders is an implacable opponent of the Citizens United decision, uh, but Citizens United actually is what made possible this union's participation in the election. Before Citizens United, both corporations and unions were prohibited from spending money to endorse political candidates. Uh, and now this nurses union is able to do that. Uh, and it's made the Democratic primaries more competitive than they otherwise would be. Uh, here's another line from the uh, story that I think is particularly telling. The group's campaigning advocacy for Mr. Sanders has drawn charges of hypocrisy from Hillary Clinton's supporters. But of course, Bernie Sanders doesn't control what super PACs do. In fact, he's essentially prohibited from talking to uh, the people who operate them. Yeah. So super PACs by law are required to be independent of candidates. They cannot coordinate their advertising with candidates. And But this is a charge that is made all the time, that people should, uh, should disavow or try to silence their super PACs. Uh, I mean, really what this is about is that candidates want to have control over the debate that occurs, and they don't like it when so-called outside groups, which is really just the public, intrudes on what they view as being their campaigns. Um, This is another line from the story because I I think top to bottom there are interesting elements here. One recent online ad from the Republican super PAC American Crossroads has assailed Mrs. Clinton for her Wall Street speaking fees, echoing an argument Mr. Sanders often makes against her. Another conservative group, Ending Spending, bankrolled by the Wyoming billionaire Joe Ricketts, has begun a $600,000 campaign in Iowa highlighting Mr. Sanders' promises to raise taxes on the rich and provide free public college tuition, calling him, quote, too liberal for Iowa. But the ad's language and imagery, including a contented-looking super-rich couple hugging in front of a mansion and expensive cars, has led some Democrats to believe it is actually meant to bolster Mr. Sanders, which is like another element of, of super PACs, which is because candidates can't coordinate with these groups uh, and because the reading of the tea leaves in polls and other things uh, might lead various strategists to conclude different things, uh, Super PACs ultimately disrupt even the candidates that they are perhaps trying to support. Yeah. So, you know, one of the theories behind the Citizens United decision was that independent political spending has less potential to corrupt candidates because 
because of the fact that it's not coordinated. And so groups go out there and they can put out ads that might be counterproductive for the candidates that they purport to be supporting. Like if, if, if there's a candidate running for office and he's anti-abortion, but perhaps he wants to downplay that and a super PAC wants to come in and buy a bunch of ads to get out the vote for people who are opposed to abortion and highlighting this fact about the candidate could actually harm their chances. Yeah, and it, and it drives candidates nuts. And candidates, frankly, feel like they have been uh, sort of unilaterally disarmed. I mean, w- one of the, the situations that we have now is under our current campaign finance regime, uh, super PACs and groups that are not directly coordinated with candidates are allowed to raise and spend unlimited amounts of money. But candidates are s- severely limited in the amount of money they can raise, and so are the political parties. And so you have a situation where uh, groups that historically have been moderating forces in American politics, the, the parties themselves, don't have as much influence in kind of the primary debate as they used to have. So what relationship is there between Uh, super PACs, for which we have uh, the Institute for Justice, specifically uh, your former colleague Steve Simpson, to thank for uh, the emergence of these uh, groups. Uh, To what extent do you think that super PACs have actually uh, bolstered candidates that have no chance of winning and by splitting votes, particularly on the Republican side, or splitting support among various candidates, have actually elevated Uh, Donald Trump, the person who's giving uh, Washington folks fits? I would say that the the record that super PACs have is is somewhat mixed. Uh, The people who were most concerned about super PACs thought that they were going to allow candidates or candidate supporters to buy election outcomes. And it's clear that that's not the case. And we can see that in this most recent primary by looking at the fact that Jeb Super PACs supporting Jeb Bush have raised more money than super PACs for any other candidate, and yet Jeb Bush is languishing in the polls in the Republican primary. On the other hand, super PACs can help prop up the campaigns of candidates who otherwise would have dropped out earlier, and that could potentially lead to a more fractured uh, Republican primary environment. And a lot of these candidates don't expect to win, but they want to get certain issues on the table. I mean, Ross Perot, if he uh, didn't have a lot of money on his own, Uh, probably would not have been able to raise nearly the public uh, perception of the budget deficit as a huge problem. Yeah, so historically, the role of third-party candidates has been, you know, they they don't have a chance of winning the election, but they can elevate issues to national prominence, as as Ross Perot uh, did. And I think we'll probably see more of that coming from candidates who are not really serious presidential contenders for the the major parties themselves, but they have issues that they care about and super PACs supporting them can help elevate those issues. And I think you and I may have discussed this a long time ago, but the uh, unintended consequence of super PACs becoming legal and popular is that it may end up forcing Congress to raise contribution limits to candidates. Yeah, I, I mean, the the candidates and the parties are not happy that they have essentially lost control over a large part of the political debate. Uh, they want to control the message of the campaigns, and they can't really do that because they can't fundraise effectively thanks to uh, the McCain-Feingold law of 2002, um, and then, of course, the earlier contribution limits that were applied to candidates back in the 1970s. So I think it does put them under enormous pressure. We've already seen at the state level, some states have started to raise their contribution limits, uh, and it's probably only a matter of time before we see more of this pressure at the federal level. There's another misconception about 
super PACs, which is that um, people are concerned that you know General Motors or Ben and Jerry's or some other companies might be making use of uh, their ability to spend after the Citizens United decision to to use those funds to spend freely on elections. But of course, super PACs are groups that are set up uh, typically for not a very long period of time just to air a message. Yeah, well, and the, the, the bigger problem with that reasoning is just what we've seen is that most of the money going to super PACs does not come from corporations. Unions give a fair amount of money, but most of the money comes from wealthy individuals who were allowed to spend money before the invention of super PACs. Since the 1970s, individuals acting alone have been allowed to spend as much money as they want on their own political speech. The only thing that really the rise of super PACs made different is that they can now pool money to do the same thing. And the nurses group, of course, that's affiliated with a union, but uh, there's no reason why a, a similar super PAC couldn't be drawn from thousands of small contributions. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And one of the benefits of super PACs as we see it is that as an individual acting alone, unless you're super rich, you really have a limited ability to kind of impact the public debate. But you can join with a super PAC, give your money to them. The super PAC may have a handful of donors who give a large amount of money, but you can join with them and actually participate in the political debate in a way you couldn't do before. Paul Sherman is a senior attorney at the Institute for Justice. Learn more about the scourge of free speech at our website, cato.org.